You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I, I think we, we have a quorum. <laughs> if anybody's waiting here to hear a conversation with Lori R. King, uh, pull up a chair to the fireside. My name's Rick Clevel, and I have host a show on KUSP 88.9 FM. That's our local NPR affiliate from 6 to 7 p.m. on Sundays called The Agony Column. And you should recognize if... If you're all Sherlockians, you should uh, recognize the source of that uh, name. And that's a show where I have conversations with authors who are often nearly as interesting as our guest tonight. She needs no introduction. Lori R. King, she's the author of the Mary Russell novels, and she's just edited this fabulous anthology called A Study in Sherlock. Thank you for joining me, Lori. Thank you. Now, now we switch off the little sign that says applause, and we can go on. <laughs> Lori, you know, when I just saw the the title of this collection, the title itself is so evocative because Sherlock Holmes is actually a, a figure you can really study. I mean, beyond, and I mean not just beyond uh, accumulating and uh, uh detailing all the, the bits and pieces of the stories, Sherlock Holmes is an archetypal figure, and I think, um, and arguably, the first, uh, uh, the last great archetype created since, maybe since Shakespeare, I think. Uh, would I argue with you? <laughs> <laughs> Except Mary, ma- maybe Mary Russell, I mean, she's. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the title comes from, as I'm sure you know, the um, the first of the Sherlock Holmes stories from um, Arthur Conan Doyle was A Study in Scarlet, which the BBC recently re- remade. I don't know if any of you have seen the BBC um, Benedict Cumberbatch series. Um, the first one is called A Study in Pink. Um, which <laughs> and they're magnificent. They really are super. They're just <laughs> great. And, and so... You know, by having something that evokes that first story, um, it it pleases the Sherlockians in the crowd. But it's also true that you can you can make studies of him in all kinds of ways. And when Les and I put the put the book before people, we said, um, "What we'd like you to do is to be inspired by the Sherlock Holmes stories, the canon." We don't want you necessarily to write pastiches, though you may if you wish. We don't want you to, you know, to follow any rules. All we want is for you to use your imagination in being inspired by Sherlock Holmes. And um, from there, you get these various studies that focus on aspects of the personality and on... um, on the way that the character and the the whole set of characters in the stories um, affect people, affect you know these these eighteen writers, who um, who mull it over and who come up with some just fascinating things. And I, I think too, what I what I like is that the the way you set up the approach of these books gives the writers a kind of freedom, and each story inspires us is not only an entertaining story in and of itself but they inspire us to think about the aspects of Sherlock Holmes as a character as it ripples out through society because I think this is real I'm quite serious that this is a Sherlock Holmes is a very important literary figure I think uh, arguably more important than anything that came around in the last century no I don't think maybe Superman uh, comes close Well, certainly as a crime writer, um, it, is, it is nearly impossible to ignore the, the character of Sherlock Holmes. I think that even if you're not doing something as outrageous as m- myself, where you just steal a character outright, um, 
you you really can't ignore the forms of the story and the personality and the idea of having a not quite as bright sidekick. Um, all the things that Conan Doyle came up with in these 56 short stories and four novels um, have, have entirely shaped this genre that, that I write in and that most of the people in this book write in. Well, you know, too, uh, you mentioned that number, 60 stories total. Mm -hmm. And that suggests that one of the real powers of uh, Sherlock Holmes is just the story itself. Doyle knew how to put together a story that you wanted to read from beginning to end, and you didn't want to stop reading. Mm -hmm. And his stories were so powerful, they've inspired us to, you know, the re I, so many writers will say, you know, you ask them, why do you write? I write what I want to read. And that's why I think so many people want to write Sherlock Holmes, because there's only 60 stories that he gave us. They want to write, <laughs> they write more Sherlock Holmes stories, because that's what they want to read. It's just not enough, that's true. Yeah, uh, yeah Conan Doyle was never convinced by Holmes. No, he never thought much of him at all. No, he, he, it, he paid the bills. <laughs> but as far as Conan Doyle was concerned, um, his his real gift was in these historical stories that he wrote, which I personally find unreadable. <laughs> yeah, his literary his yeah he thought his literary fiction would be the what to, what survived, and I think that's an interesting thing too because I, I what he was doing with uh, Sherlock Holmes I think was much more unconscious. And I think when a writer reaches into their unconscious and just does, I'm going to have some fun. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do rip something off. I'm going to have make a little money. I think that's often when they really strike their their strongest work because they're not getting in their own way. Yes, you think that if if Conan Doyle had taken the character and the stories really seriously, he would have put the same kind of weight on them that he did in a lot of his, his weight company and the rest of his, his historical stuff that, uh, you know, perhaps perhaps we should be glad that he didn't. We might have more <laughs> stories, but they would be similarly turgid. <laughs> and I, I think, too, I mean, a lot of people say to me, at least they're polite when they talk to me about them, um, the stories that I do with Mary Russell as a main character and Sherlock Holmes as a supporting actor. Um, I, I, I think a lot of people find that presentation of Holmes um, really evocative of the original. And it could be for this precise reason that I, I don't treat him with too much respect. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's, that's true. <coughs> <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, also too, I think um, you do a you do a great job of um, playing with one of the things that's also very interesting about Sherlock Holmes is uh, what uh, there's a quote the idea of a person, and you play with the is he real is he not idea you handle that masterfully and that's been handled and we get at that a lot in this book this kind of idea that. Taking Sherlock Holmes as a real person, he's, you know, and you're just telling his stories. Doyle did uh, that did that with a very light hand, and so do you. And But I think that's an interesting uh, way of kind of this blurring the line between, you know, fiction and reality. And Well, I am an invested member of the Baker Street Irregulars. Mm -hmm. um, and as such, I am committed to the declaration that Sherlock Holmes lived and the, the from that comes the idea that surely he must still be alive because his obituary has yet to appear in the Times of London. <laughs> so if, if Holmes lived, if Watson wrote the stories, if Conan Doyle was the literary agent, mm -hmm. um, I then have to embrace that same idea with the Russell stories. That is, Russell is the real one. I am her literary agent. Um, 
Which really actually works really well if there's any mistakes in the books. <laughs> because they're, you. Just, they're just not my fault. <laughs> she, she clearly, you know, her writing was really bad. Um, and, and so, you know, to, to present this kind of metafiction as you're going into the thing, mm-hmm. um, there's various places where, for example, Russell talks about um, how she occasionally feels slightly unreal because she's living with this character who, who the world regards as fictional, so therefore she feels fictional. I think a number of the characters in A Study in Sherlock um, involved, are involved in the same kind of metafiction. That is, um, I, I am involved in this person who is real but yet not. So it's, it makes for a great, a great playing of what they call the game. <laughs> and two, what, it's interesting too to just think of Holmes as, a, as an archetype, as some, something that, you know, shat, that we see in other people, that whose the format, the parts of his character seem so um, vivid that nobody ever put those things together before. And, you know, we could talk about he's a chameleon. He's an observer, you know. He's something of a loner. That all these, the way this was all put together to create this, you know, detect consulting detective figure. That was a. It had been done before by other people, but um, Doyle really nailed that and created that figure that lives in our minds, whether we want to or not. One of the one of the interesting things that Doyle did was um, to use a character in a returning series of stories that this was not this was not done normally you would have oh wow i never thought about that yeah yeah that you you would have characters who were in a novel and you serialize the novel mm-hmm. or occasionally like um, poe had dupin um, you would have the same characters appear in in a few stories but this business of having 56 stories that appeared regularly in the Strand, um, that you got to know them, but you weren't committed to you know, 12 or 15 um, s- serial episodes that if you missed one, you were just screwed until the book came out. Um, th- this idea of having a man who could do this, this case, this investigation, and, and finish it that week mm-hmm. was an exciting way of handling fiction um, and something that I think Conan Doyle was was one of the first to really do that seriously. And, and boy, when you look at it that way, boy, he was a uh, hundred years ahead of uh, episodic TV. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and two, to think of how he used the short story. The short story is a format. I mean... Uh, to to tell such complete stories, such complete stories, so rich in detail, so rich in character, plot, and motivation, and you know, evoke the history, evoke the time, the description. There's a lot of stuff in every Sherlock Holmes story, but they read really fast, and that does a lot. I think he did a lot for the short story form. It's I mean, when you look at the stories, and if if any of you have not read. The Sherlock Holmes stories in a while. I really suggest that you do so because they're they're great stories. I came to them as an adult myself, and um, and found them. I mean, you expect them to be clever, but you don't expect them to be funny, or um, or revealing of this man's passion. Um, and they are that very definitely. Um, you you have a limited set of characters who appear regularly in the stories. And I think that is that is of an advantage for Conan Doyle, that mm-hmm. he doesn't have to then start and explain each time who these characters are. You get to know them. Um, the amount that he has to explain in each story about backstory is, is relatively small. There'll be a few references here and there, but he basically just doesn't bother telling you what happened last month, because mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. No, it does not, not for that story. And, and the the side characters too. He put a put enough effort in them so that they were evocative, mm. and and you know 
you cared about them and you you know you know who all that all of them are too he's he's very sparing with his description and very mm -hmm. effective um, he's uh, where this comes from in the man it's hard to know but he is indeed a natural born storyteller and um, and, and it shows in his in his work I think that it's it's interesting to look at these stories in study of Sherlock because mm -hmm. so many of them um, if if you didn't know Sherlock Holmes they would still be interesting stories but the fact that they are in some way inspired by Holmes and there's a couple of them that you you don't know really how how they overlap with the Holmes stories um, and that that doesn't matter because the characters are are real well too because they draw on the same core aspects of the Holmes archetype that makes Holmes powerful mm -hmm. and they combine it in in the same ways I mean um, but there are also uh, some very clever wonderful uh, stories in there that you know just you, you read them and you go, oh, this is so wonderful. I I, I really love Tony Broadbent's story. So, yes. The, tell, did did he's he's local? Did you discuss this? Did he just uh, drop that on your doorstep? It was it was fascinating because Les and I agreed from the beginning that we would give no guidelines. We'd mm -hmm. be available if people wanted to check information because you know Les Klinger. Um, is the author of the three-volume new annotated Sherlock Holmes. He's written any number of books about Sherlock Holmes. He's he is you know he's the guy who knows the stuff, and I just kind of ride on his coattails. But um, so he he was available. We were available if anybody needed to check anything. And I think that we had almost none. There were one or two people who said, "Do you know where this story is? Or where there's a mention of such and such?" And he would drag it out of the back of his head. Um, but um, I can't remember where I was going with this. But uh, uh, Tony's story. Tony's story. So we we had agreed from the beginning that we would not give any guidance to them. We would just say it something that inspires you about the stories, and we would get these gifts that would drop through uh, mostly the computer, but one or two of them came actually in the mail, um, and it was it was like getting a present because we would be the first one to have read these stories and and we you know we'd read these things and we did you see did you get <laughs> it was just such a thrill and and Tony's was one of those you read it through the first time and you think man this is really clever and then you have to read it the second time and you think wow this is really clever <laughs> and, and i now, think Tony came and did an event um, here yeah was it last year yeah it was last year yeah so anyone, any of you who, who heard him, you can hear him, I think, very much in the story. He oh, yes. His British, his British accent. Well, the, that uh, a story, and, and there's a couple stories in there that speak to the theme of uh, the, the, what Orson Welles uh, said about Holmes. He had never lived so he could never die. Fictional and immortal. And I think that's an mm -hmm. interesting uh, <clears throat> uh, look at that character. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was, um, Tony's, I think, was, was, he looks over the whole spectrum of the, especially the film and television um, presentations of Holmes and makes a lot of reference to those. Now, a lot of these two um, stories, because Holmes is so pervasive in our culture, you can write a great Sherlock Holmes story in which that's all about Sherlock Holmes, but about people who are just interested and obsessed with Sherlock Holmes, and there are no shortage of those people. <laughs> no. I, well, wait, I, maybe there's some out there in the audience. <laughs> oh, I can't believe that. In Santa Cruz? Nah. One of the great fun ones in here was um, I had asked Colin Cotterell to do, and Colin came, I think. I had asked Colin Cotterell to do a story, and he said, oh, sure, sure. And so... If, you, if you've never looked at Colin Cotterell's um, website, you really should, because he does these very, very interesting drawings. And so I, I wrote back to him and I said, you know, if you'd like to do a graphic story, I think I could talk Random House into doing it, which was probably, um, probably stupid of me, but they, 
I, I bullied them. <laughs> Good. <laughs> they, they weren't happy. Um, so he, he said, great. So he did this, um, you know, this graphic short story, um, which I, I don't know that it, this, this is very common, that you have, um, you know, you open a, a, an anthology and, and you find, you know, drawings. Um, and I think even Collins, which starts out um, that that um, Laurie King asked if no, he'd Larry write it. No, no. Oh. I'd always liked Laurie. He was forceful but never rude, and I was pleased. <laughs> he'd found a new interest to take his mind off leaving CNN, so I said yes. And there's a picture of Larry King. <laughs> and so you're reading this and you're thinking, okay. <laughs> and, and even he manages to capture, he turns this story and twists it around, and all of a sudden you realize that he actually is writing a mystery story. And, and after all this stuff about Laurie King and Larry King and his dog is writing it and all the rest of it, and, and, he, and he presents a very Sherlockian thing based on these specific measurements and, and, and modern cutting edge <laughs> equipment, which I won't spoil the story for you, but it's just, it's just they were such a delight to get these, these, these stories. Now, let's ratchet back a bit, and you and Les hanging out together um, yeah. all the time. Now, studying Sherlock started at um, the Left Coast Crime Conference that was in Southern California somewhere, L.A., a few years ago when the, uh, the planners asked Les if he would like to put together a Sherlock Holmes panel. And he said, Yes, I would put together a Sherlock Holmes panel, but I want my choice of people. And I want Mike Connolly, Jan Burke, Lee Child, Laurie King, and me. And they looked at him and they said, yeah, but those are all the guests of honor. <laughs> and he said, yeah, I know. So we had this panel on Sherlock Holmes. And, of course, nobody really expected any of, well, they know me, but... Um, they, they didn't really expect the other three to have much to say about Sherlock Holmes, because who would? I mean, Lee Child. And it was fascinating to see how thoroughly read um, people whose stories don't instantly evoke Sherlock Holmes in your mind um, were when it came to the canon. So afterwards, Les and I looked at each other, and Les and I have done a number of events together. We call it the Les and Laurie Show. Although I think Les calls it the Laurie and Les show because he's very polite. Um, but the Les and Laurie show is, is fun because we come at the material from two very different points of view. He is an annotator, and I am an abuser. <laughs> <laughs> I just steal it. Um, so um, we, we looked at each other after this, after this panel, and we said, you know, it would be really cool to, to see some short stories and little lights went on in our heads, and I talked to my editor and said, would you maybe be interested? And uh, we started writing to people. And I think, you know, I don't think we had more than one or two people who said, no, I, I can't do this, I don't, you know, don't have the time. People just thought this was the, the most fun in the world, that all these individuals who had nothing out in the open to do with Sherlock Holmes, the Neil Gaiman was one exception, and um, you know, Neil's an exception in all kinds of ways. But we, he, he had written a, an award-winning short story about Sherlock Holmes a number of years ago. Oh, it's a but, fantastic uh, short, Sherlock yeah. Holmes and Cthulhu. What more can you ask? A for? study in emerald. <laughs> a study in emerald. <laughs> but um, but anyway, we 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 asked Neil to be in it, um, and um, and all these other people, and they all. I, I don't know. If you took the names off of the people on there, I think most of them, you'd really have a tough time knowing who it was as an author, even if you knew them well. No, I, I think you're right. Uh, it's, I mean, uh, Laura Lippman. Mm -hmm. I mean, her story is fabulous. It's just this beautiful, uh, um, it's very literary. I mean, mm -hmm. it's like a, it's like something you find in Granta magazine. Mm -hmm. And it, and, but it also makes a reference to one of my favorite uh, 1970s mystery movies, too. 
<laughs> the last of Sheila Locke. So, yes. uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's lots of things that go on in these stories. I mean, that's, that's the fun part with doing uh, um, something that's based on another person's material, is that you can make reference, and only people who know the, the reference really get it. The rest of the people just read on and, you know, don't really notice. But if, uh, you know, there's quite a bit uh, of just offhand references in, uh, in my stuff and in these stories, and it's... For somebody who knows the canon well, it's like somebody nudging you in the ribs saying, get it, get it. <laughs> yeah, and it's nice, too, even if you don't, and, and because I'm not nearly as well-versed as Laurie or as many people here probably, but even if you don't know all the references, you know you know them when you find them, you know that's that's got to mean something. This mm-hmm. has to mean something. And I think that's one thing, too, about Holmes <clears throat> is that, uh, well, arguably he's the first superhero, because he does have a soup, this kind of superpower of, of observation. He's the intellectual superhero, yes. Yeah, and an and, and, uh, and, and inaction hero. <laughs> <laughs> Although, you know, the, I, I think that the, the mental image we have of him as being around the fire smoking his pipe all the time um, is, is based on the drawings that Sidney Paget did because it's much easier to do drawings of someone sitting in front of a fireplace than it is to, to have him boxing or whatever. The, the, the Robert Downey film is not really that far off. Um, You're right. Yeah, no, I'm, you, you told me that. You like yeah. Robert Downey. Well, I think the second one is a little over the top. But, um, but the, the idea of Holmes as being a man of action mm-hmm. Um, is definitely canonical. Oh, yeah, because he's always out um, in disguise, tracking people, tracing yeah, people. I mean, and and that's he has a boxing match with someone, and he, he, he you know, fences, and he does single stick. And, you know, I mean, he's a very physical kind of person. But I think, too, for um, the as a, as a character, I think, and the, that's one of the reasons I like the Neil Gaiman character in all these stories there's a lot of like he edges on a kind of supernatural and you think of hound at the baskervilles it's mm-hmm. always debunked it never comes out that way but i think that uh, the appeal of holmes is that he seems something just a little bit more than human but still human mm-hmm. and i think that's one of the real the things that i really liked about reading the stories you kind of are always waiting for something a little bit more to happen you know it's not going to but there's just that feeling on the edge of this, those stories. And the number of Conan Doyle stories that, that have Holmes and rationality set against what appears at first to be, you know, very parapsychological or very otherworldly and, and in fact comes down to monkey gland insects. <laughs> yeah. well, and it's so interesting, too, because Doyle believed in all that stuff that Holmes didn't. Doyle was out there. He was, you know, he was, yes. he was, he was an interesting fellow in himself. Yeah. Certainly after the war. I mean, and you have to remember that by the time the war came along, um, Holmes was pretty well established in everyone's head. But uh, definitely after the war when his son was, was killed and um, he, he got very involved in spiritualism to some extent beforehand. But I think it, his, his path was definitely pushed in that direction. Um, by the trauma of the Great War. Well, and, and uh, Doyle was uh, one of the things, and this, there's a great uh, story in here that riffs on that. Um, Doyle based his stuff on real events, and based, you know, George Bell was ostensibly the uh, inspiration for mm-hmm. for Holmes. Yeah. <coughs> and there is, as I say, a, a, a fabulous story. Uh, the uh, what is it? Um, I'm trying to remember the title. The the case that Holmes lost. <laughs> that riffs on on the uh, on Doyle's uh, uh, leaning on real events. Yes, yes, that, that that too is one of those sort of metafictional things of wanting to sue a fictional character. And yes, <laughs> great fun. Now, when <clears throat> you also uh, came up with a, had a little bit of fun at the end of this, <laughs> inventing yet another literary format. Uh, <laughs> tell us about your your. Uh, t- to interview. Well, yeah, Mary Russell is very active on Twitter. 
<laughs> she tweeted she's, this uh, this event. Yeah, I, I tell you, she's she, she's, she's out there. I don't she's know. She's really techie. Um, 112 years old now, and she, you know, she she has little arthritis because of the because of Holmes's bees, and <laughs> but. Um, Les is also quite active on Twitter, and so um, we decided that our contribution to the book would be a Twitter interview, a twinterview. And um, we, we, we had it back and forth between Les doing, Les wants to do an interview with Mary Russell, and she says, well, only if we keep it on Twitter so that it's there in front of everyone because otherwise you may twist my words around. Of course, she says all this in 140 characters. So, <laughs> so the two of them carry out this Twitter interview, which <laughs> I was it was great fun. I was pleased to see that she uh, abjured him not to use uh, uh, abbreviations. and <laughs> yes. She made him write whole words, which was uh, pleased me to no end. <laughs> She's, she, yes, she's quite a proper lady. She doesn't doesn't believe in, because Les was trying to cram in as much information as possible by using the you know two and. <laughs> you know, uh, one thing about Holmes is is that even you mentioned this uh, many times. Even while he was, even while Doyle was producing his his stories, other people were already ripping them off, so to speak, <laughs> and, and, you know, producing pastiches. And I think that really, you know, uh, only, uh, almost only with uh, Doyle and, and uh, Holmes, does the, I think the pastiche becomes something more than the uh, slightly derogatory nature of, of what, you know, when you say that word, you think, well, it's just a pastiche. No, I think it's much, much more, especially with Holmes. You, they're, there's so much depth in that character. I think you can gives you something you can really grab onto. Yeah, the um, I, and I mean it's sort of a it's it's difficult to say what's a pastiche and what's an inspiration, mm -hmm. um, or an homage. Uh huh. Um, but yeah, a couple of the stories in here are frank pastiches. Mm -hmm. um, Tom Perry's. Is, Tom Perry's is so great. Alternate yeah. history, I yes. love it. Alternate <clears throat> history, yeah. Um, Yes, that was that was a that was an interesting one. It's the longest one in the book, and we sort of were taken aback. It's like a small novel. <laughs> Lots of interesting information in there. He'd been he'd been saving this up, I think, for a long time. Well, you know, uh, I I think the immortality of Holmes is is interesting. Uh, Gaiman addresses that directly in his story, but I think just. The, the variety of ways um, that he, um, because the character is so powerful, it works in no matter where you take it. I mean, we have Tony Broadbent in the modern day. We have the, the uh, Sherlock, the Sherlock stories that are on BBC, which are just rockin' good. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's really a tribute to the power of this character. And, you know, not to put too fine a point upon it, your fantastic work, I mean, the, the power of that character, I think, is is really palpable. And I don't think there's any other character in any fiction anywhere that has matched that in terms of being able to sustain that level of interest and attract that level of quality of writing. The, when you think about Sherlock Holmes, um, the image that comes to mind is somebody who is you know, very, very clever. But when you think about him longer, it's not so much that he outsmarts people. It is his way of throwing himself passionately um, for the sake of his clients. He dedicates himself, body and soul, to the pursuit of justice. And I think that is the key to his appeal, not just that he's really smart. You're right. Yeah, I think that that makes perfect sense. That <clears throat> he's a, a a passionate person in a in a world that's growing less tolerant of passion. But he, it, he, the vehicle for his passion is intellect, and that's an in, that's a kind of uh, an opposite an opposition that is that's interesting. That you know, give, there's a lot of gives you a lot of room for play 
that somebody who's passionate about applying his intellect, looking at the facts, that's a that's a kind of a. a it's very modern in the sense that the Victorians um, were strongly committed to the sense that human beings can effect change, that we can change the way things are by thinking about them, by working on them. This is a very Victorian idea. This is a very Holmesian idea. And it's very modern. I mean, if you are ill, um, in the 16th century, you were just ill. And you might live and you might not, and there was not much anyone could do about it. But beginning in the Victorian era, there was a conviction that if we just could think hard enough, we could solve it. And I think it's embodied in Holmes that if we can just think hard enough, we can get these people out of this really impossible situation that you know we find them in, whether they're, you know, they have a vampire in the house apparently, or whether they're, you know, threatened by a, a marriage they didn't want, or any of these things that are impossible situations, but if we just apply rationality to it hard enough and passionately enough, we can, we can set it straight. And he was an early adopter of technology, and I think there's a, when you were talking about uh, this idea, the Victorian idea that people can fix it, um, long time ago I talked with a guy named John, John Clute, who's a really brilliant kind of critic, and he said that, you know, each of the, uh, um, genres had a different kind of take on it and the the um, take of the mystery genre was we broke it it's gone and the take of the science fiction genre was we can fix it and I think that there's an element of that in Holmes that kind of science fictional we can find a technology we can find a solution to fix these things to, to you know we can use our brains and apply our technology to fix the world and find out what's going on. Yeah. The first we see of Sherlock Holmes in the, in the first story, um, he is in a laboratory and he has come up with a test for hemoglobin that you, you have a blood stain and if you can test to see if it's blood or not, um, all kinds of doors open up. But it's not just that he is doing this and working in a laboratory. It is his excitement at it. Because when Watson and this friend of his who's going to introduce the two of them come into the lab, Holmes is thrilled. I mean, he's just as thrilled as a kid with a sack of candy that <laughs> he's found this test. Look what I've done. And I, I think that the one without the other is an incomplete character. Mm -hmm. The excitement and the, the intellect um, by themselves are, are incomplete, but the two together are very, very Holmesian. And, and, you know, you just pointed that out, too, that there's something childlike about Holmes that makes him charming, no matter how competent and to a degree how ruthless he is. There is a sort of childlike wonder that He's, you know, like anybody, kid, anybody, any one of us here, present us with a problem. Can I figure out how to, I can figure out how to fix that. And I think that's one of the, you know, that kind of, that childlike sense of looking well, at things for anew. He can see stuff new. I, I think probably Watson and Mrs. Hudson would have said childish, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's important. Now, that's an important distinction because in this book, there's a lot of great, uh, stories that one of the things that this book does is explore um, canonical stories from different perceptions, and uh, I absolutely love the the uh, I'm gonna hopefully I can remember this darn time the men with the twisted lips. Yeah. That is a really brilliant turn yes. of events. Yeah, yes, yes. S. J. Roseanne's um, not so much a retelling of a story. No, but no. Uh, looking at what's behind a story. Um, S.J. writes um, a series that has, uh, it's set in, in New York mostly, with, um, that's, that's her characters alternate books um, between an, a white man and an, an, an 
Chinese-American woman, both of whom are um, PIs. And so she wanted to write something to do with the Limehouse area in London, which is where the Chinese tended to live in the 19th century. Um, but of course, the only, the only real story set there was the man with the twisted lip. So she started looking at that and realizing that there would be a story behind this story that, um, that Holmes, in all his cleverness, didn't know. <laughs> Which I thought was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah it, it's, it's, it's really nice. And uh, what's nice about these stories, too, is they allow the reader to kind of um, participate in a way that's more on two levels. You're reading the story as a you know, as an internal story, but you're also kind of peeling away the mystery. You know, how does this connect to Holmes? What does this have to do? I mean, um, you don't have to, but I think that's a large part of the pleasure of this book is, you know, thinking thinking about each of these stories in terms of, of Sherlock Holmes uh, as um, to, gives you just another thing to grab onto. And the way that... Um Jackie Winspear oh, that's ties a- together. Now, without giving away the ending in that, because that, that is one that I think the ending it makes, a, makes a very interesting little twist, um, to look at the way that uh, the crime community is tied together, mm-hmm. that um, you know a, a, a young boy is um, sick in bed with the measles and so gets inspired by the Sherlock Holmes stories, um, that... It, it just, it's one of those lovely things you get, especially with short stories, that you, you have the sense of a door opens and a f- fresh wind blows through and changes the way you saw things for a while. Well, I, I think, again, that's the uh, Sherlock Holmes, and you are saying this again, anybody here can pick up a, a, any old Sherlock Holmes story, whether you've read it before or not, and they still seem really fresh. There's a, a lightness... To the prose, even though I think one of the things that's nice about the prose is is that uh, Doyle wrote stuff that, you know, it seems he wrote with a, enough formality. We kind of like that, you know, that treats uh, the reader, you know, as a, you kind of feel like you're sitting down in the drawing room with him. Mm-hmm. It's it's interesting that the the Conan Doyle stories to my mind, don't feel dated. No. They feel definitely period pieces. Mm -hmm. But when I read, for example, um, Dorothy L. Sayers, some of her stuff is uncomfortably dated. I mean, some of her attitudes, you think, well, I'll forgive her because she was writing in the 30s. But I don't find that I do that with Conan Doyle. I don't find that... um, that there's a lot to forgive and overlook. No, you're right. You know, I never thought about that. A certain amount of racism, but mm-hmm. only the kind of racism that comes when you you don't know anyone from that race, <laughs> which you know, sort of okay. This is this is coming from um, a certain time and place, and you can't expect a mm-hmm. lot more than that. But even then, um, you know, some of the yeah. I mean, there, there's a certain amount of racism in some of them, but his, th- there's not a lot of sexism in there in the Conan Doyle stories, which is odd considering that Holmes is usually regarded as a misogynist. Well, that's interesting. Why do you, why do you think that is? Perhaps because... Uh, I guess he never had, they never turned into romances. Uh, well, no, well, that's true, no. And, um, and I, thank God for that. <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you you were the one to do that. that yeah, he, he was leaving it for his old age. Yes. Um, I think that, for one thing, Conan Doyle was a gentleman. Mm-hmm. And to, to, to that kind of gentleman, um, you know, women have a certain role that is there to be protected but to be respected. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I don't think that... Um, I don't think there's a lot that's offensive in there. Oh, no. no. Well, I think, too, he was... Uh, Doyle and the, the Sherlock Holmes stories really get their thrust from... Uh, I mean, he knew how to plot a story. And the the plot, he was, a, you know, a master plotter. It's easy to... 
Well, yeah, except there's a few places where if you look closely, there's <laughs> there's one story, the Priory School, that entirely um, rests on being able to tell on a bicycle which wheel is pointing which direction so that, you know, the, the back wheel covers the front one and so therefore you're going in that direction. Mm. And after the thing was in print, someone pointed out to him that you really can't tell. <laughs> Which was slightly unfortunate, but that's all right. So. <laughs> well, but he, I think nonetheless he had a, a strong thrust of story. I mean, mm -hmm. he knew how to keep you reading those stories to the oh, very yeah. end. Yeah, they are they are page turners, and that's not and they still are. Even now, which is unusual, I think, for anything written that long ago, as you say, they, they date well. Now, when you were, guys were putting together this, this anthology, um, you got one of the things you got were some stories that um, use Sherlock Holmes as kind of, I think, completely external to the story. There's a couple of stories where so talk about the you know just the the fact that you can have characters in a story who are like Sherlock Holmes but not Sherlock Holmes or or have that kind of relationship. I mean, because we see that a lot now too. Well, I, yeah, I think that I think that some of the writers here um, were trying to make make a sort of revisitation of the Holmes personality. One of them. Um, Sorry, Jan Burke writes one, and um, I, I'm I'm very glad to know that Jan had been wanting to write something in that post-war period for a while, and she's now thinking about doing a series set in there with maybe the same characters, maybe not. So uh, always nice to know you've inspired other people. But um, so Jan writes about a guy who um, who thinks of himself as Sherlock Holmes. Um, but as the story progresses, uh, you realize that, no, he's the Watson. <laughs> which, I, which I found a lovely twist. <laughs> you know, there's a story. It's not in here, but I talked to a guy who wrote a story. And he, he talked about, uh, you know, the, the, what's interesting is the variations you can have on the way the sidekick and the... Uh, detective relate to one another mm. and I think you know you get a you get a that's I think one of the things that um, Doyle did just by setting that kind of relationship up that in itself creates a lot of uh, literary possibilities in itself is kind of a genre had anybody um, set up that kind of main character and sidekick before I Auguste Dupin Auguste Dupin if you look at the, the three post stories that have to do with Dupin um, they they have very much. I mean, there's a whole bunch of points that mm -hmm. um, Conan Doyle just ripped off wholesale from from Poe, um, and this business of having the narrator and the particularly brilliant detective um, is one of them. Mm. So that they are, um, you know, the Dupin stories are uh, are written by the man who is looking at the really brilliant detective. Um, and, uh, but, but as I said, uh, you know, Conan Doyle was the one to develop it numerically. Mm -hmm. Poe did this, you know, three times in his, in his career. Um, he didn't make an entire series of them. He didn't publish them as a series. He didn't market them as a series. He didn't make a collection of them. Um, and, and so this idea of the detective and his um, gun-toting sidekick was a thing that um, that Conan Doyle nailed down, and since then we've all been using. It's, a, it's in you know, there's so many uh, interesting variations you can do on that, and I th well we we love your variation on that. Well, uh, I talk about you know uh, take us back, tell us a little bit about. When you made writing the Beekeeper's Apprentice, well, I I was um, I was interested in <coughs> that character of of Holmes, that mind, um, and to to say what, in effect, I was doing what these 
writers, you know, were doing 20 years later. I was saying, what would that mind look like in a different setting? Um, and I, I had wanted to tell a story of um, a young woman's coming of age, an extraordinary young woman who has the mind of Sherlock Holmes. And she is, you know, of a different generation, of a different background, um, of the 20th century rather than Victorian era. And yet they have a very similar kind of mind and a way of looking at the world. Um, and that's where, that's where those stories come from, the idea that, you know, the mind is kind of like an engine. You can transplant it from a middle-aged Victorian male to a, to a young 20th century Jewish-American woman. <laughs> sure, why not? Uh, do we have any uh, questions out in the audience? One down there. My, my introduction to home was through my grandparents. And I think the subtext for, for that was for my grandmother. She was British and she wanted to make sure that I understood as much as I could about what it meant to be British <laughs> and, and, and that, that sort of tradition of things. For my grandfather, it was about not having all the information but solving, being engaged in the question and the, the puzzle of things and to be able to take things that didn't look like they were related and figure out where they fit, that, that problem-solving part of things. Because that was, that was his big passion in life, was being able to be a doctor, and he liked finding answers to difficult problems. And that, 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 that was a way of sort of bringing out um, my curiosity and, and making it, it something that was okay to do. And I, and I think that was the, the biggest thing about about Holmes was, is that you started looking. I started looking through the world as all kinds of things that had more possibilities than what was on the surface. And that's probably why people still gravitate to him because we all love the question, not the answer. I agree. I think that's. Well, or, um, you don't want to repeat all that. Pardon? <laughs> you don't want to repeat that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. Um, I, I think that a lot of people love the mystery genre in general because of this challenge. I think that um, a, a friend and I have just finished writing a book on, um, on how to write crime fiction. And one of the questions uh, that... Who? With who? Michelle Spring. Okay. It'll be out, I think, in October here. Um, and... But wh one of the questions that is addressed is, um, why do people read crime? What is it that interests us? And as, as you say, um, this challenge of figuring stuff out and a proper crime story gives you the necessary information to get to the answer. Um, it, is, it is like a verbal jigsaw puzzle that you are trying to figure out, a crossword puzzle. And you're, that, is, that is a very big appeal um, of using it as an intellectual exercise. But I think your grandmother's side of things too, that it has information about Britain, that it has the flavor of the time and place that she wanted you to have is another very big part of crime fiction that um, I, I always smile when people say, I love your books because I learn so much, because of course I lie for a living. <laughs> um, but I know what they mean, because what you are learning about is um, the, the author's grasp of a time and place and situation. And, and most of us as writers do enough research that it's, it's valid. Life attitudes. Yeah. Yeah, I think that life attitudes, um, sometimes it's, it's a challenge because if you have, for example, um, a book set in the, in the mid-20s and you have a young woman doing things that we don't tend to think of something as, as a woman doing in the mid-20s, um, it's always a question of is this an anachronism or is this just my misunderstanding of what was going on in the 20s? 
And it's, it's always interesting to look at, such as Conan Doyle stories that were set in the Victorian era, um, that they are um, some of the attitudes and, um, and ways people interact um, strike us as being very modern. But they're not rewritten stories. They are as, as they came out then. Well, too, that's something that I was thinking about as well, is that um, because Doyle lived in the city, there's a, a real urban aspect to, the, to these things. Mm-hmm. They go out to the countryside, but there's a very urban aspect to them that makes them seem very modern. And the way he writes about the city is, even though there are there are no cars. It feels modern. It feel it feels yeah. very like you're. It doesn't feel mm-hmm. that different from the modern day, and that's one of the, I think the real appeals. That's one of the interesting things about reading um, books that are that are originally written um, in historical periods. That it's it's very difficult to pin down historical details because the writer is not interested in telling you you know, about the straw that's on the street so that the horse cart wheels don't make noise outside the sick room. Um, the, they're not interested in telling you, um, y- you know, that the, that the telephone is one of these long things with the little... And the, but you, they're much more interested in just telling the story and you're moving forward so that the, the historical details um, are often very subtle and slipped in on the side so that you don't picture an old car, you picture a car. And you, you picture the character. You're, yeah. you're, you're in with those characters and you care about them and that's where you want to be. And it makes writing historical fiction um, a, a little difficult because I want to put in some of those details. But I don't want to put in so many that it reads like a list of three by five cards. <laughs> so it's, it, the balance is very tricky. Um, much easier to write, you know, if you're writing, if you're writing in the twenties, just write in the twenties, and then you have to worry about it. <laughs> well, until they invent a time machine, or until you find your TARDIS, you'll have to. Uh, yes, yes, so my TARDIS is waiting for me somewhere. There's a question there. Um, Laurie, did you always want to write and and? If so, what made you choose crime fiction? I was always a big reader, but I, I think that it never occurred to me that human beings wrote those things you had on the shelves. Um, <laughs> if, if I'd been in one of those schools where you actually meet a, an author, it might have dawned on me a little earlier, but as it was, I got to my 30s and thought, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> Maybe I could do this, too. Um, and... I um, I think that at the time I would I would have been reading more science fiction than anything else, but I found when I started writing, um, science fiction was too um, too general. It, it there were too many directions a story could go in, whereas with crime fiction with a mystery. You have the bones of the story. Um, you you have to tell the story in a certain way, in order for it to work. It's a piece of machinery that, you know, it's kind of like writing a sonnet or a haiku or something. You have rules for how it's done, and and within that you can tell pretty much any story you want. So, I I sort of stumbled into the genre backwards. Um, because I wanted to write about this young woman, and um, and found that it was very comfortable. It was a comfortable place place for me. the 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 forms of crime fiction um, allowed me as much freedom as I wanted. It it allowed me to tell the kinds of stories that I wanted to tell. So, I have written. You know, I wrote one futuristic novel. Um, that was a really good novel too. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. We'd like you to write more. Yeah. Well. Are you going to? <laughs> <laughs> what, what, it, what's what's coming up? We've got we've got yeah. a how-to book. What's what else is coming up? Um. In September, I have um, 
the next Russell and Holmes, which is um, the Pir Pirate King ended in um, a town on the coast of Morocco called Rabat and Saleh, twin cities across the river from each other. And um, my, my poor long-suffering editor knew that I was going to give her an argument when, I, when she asked me to write another um, Holmes and Russell in a row because I don't like to write the same, the same characters year in and year out. And I had written this three in a row. So she, she worked herself up and she called me and she had this whole argument about why I really needed to write another Russell and Holmes and you know, you know figures and and I let her talk and talk and talk and talk and <laughs> she pauses her breath and I said okay. <laughs> How much time had lapsed? Well, between between finishing the one and starting the other, not much. You know, a couple of weeks. Um, <laughs> I was thinking. Yeah, no, no, I write a book a year, so it doesn't give me much leeway for thinking about things. Um, but I, I had realized that I just fell in love with Morocco, and I couldn't bear to let them go just to this one place on the coast of Morocco. It's this one little walled city, and they never leave the city except at the very end. And, you know, I mean... I just couldn't bear it, so I thought I'm, I have to write a book set in Fez, and um, and so I, I, I told her I would, and she sort of picked herself up off the floor and said, "Oh, good." <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's um, it's about Morocco. Uh, it's 1924. Morocco is in the midst of a civil war. Um, the French protectorate is in the south. The Spanish um, in the north. The Spanish have a revolt on their hands for the Reef Mountains, and Russell and Holmes get involved with it. But the book opens with Russell waking up in a house in the Medina in Fez um, with blood on her hands, a knife cut on her arm, and nothing in her memory. So she has amnesia, which which is an interesting place to have amnesia, is the Medina in Fez. <laughs> um, and so that's, that comes out. It's called Garment of Shadows, and it had its uh, title long before the Robert Downey title was announced, um, really honestly. And, um, and so that's probably September. Um, and then what? I've got the Arvon Book of Crime Writing in October. And then I, I will be writing um, a sequel to Touchstone. I suppose I was going to ask, are we going to yeah. have to hear from the Touchstone yeah. people again? Yeah. Good, good. I, 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 told, I told my editor that I would, um, I would write another Russell and Holmes if she gave me a, a contract that specifically said, not a Russell and Holmes. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, so yes, I, I have that. So that, that's what I'll be working on this year. Paris, 1929. Better travel to Paris. It's a hard life, isn't it? <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. One more question. When, I, uh, when you first started talking tonight, I heard Mary Russell in my head. And so I wonder whether you, whether you are Mary Russell, or is she you, or...? Oh, she's much brighter than I am. <laughs> um, I think that I think that every um, every character a, an author produces has some, you know, some scrap of autobiography in them. Um, even the bad guys. Sounds like you aspired. Yeah, yeah. I mean, don't we all? Yeah. <laughs> I was at a an event in Portland this year. And we did a lot of pirate events because of Pirate King. So I had encouraged all the, all the bookstores to, you know, to have people dress up in costume. Um, and I gave prizes for the best costumes. Well, for some reason, Portland had a lot of them. And I, I, I think they had had some kind of pirate event a couple weeks before, and so everyone mm -hmm. still had their costumes out. So they thought, all oh, right, we'll just, 
swashbuckle down to the bookstore. And so I had about eight or ten people in full, you know, Johnny Depp regalia, the whole thing. <laughs> and I'm sitting there signing afterwards, and this woman <coughs> comes up who's got, you know, the hair and the beads and the... How some of these people got on public transportation, I don't know, because they got you know, cutlasses and, you know, blunderbusses and all the rest of it. And she leans forward over my table and says, do you have a throwing knife? Uh, <laughs> I kind of lean back and say, um, no, they don't really look too kindly on that for TSA, <laughs> you know. And so, um, it, you, know, you know what a throwing knife looks like. They're not very long. They don't really have a handle. They're just one piece of metal that's the whole thing, and they're sharp on one end, and they're flat. And, of course, Mary Russell carries one in her boot, um, which my, my brother-in-law was so pleased when he found in the new book that Mary Russell gets to throw her throwing knife a couple of times. So he was just <coughs> so pleased. Um, Does she have her mark? Of course. Oh. Of course. It's Mary course. Russell. She's oh, come on. It's Mary Russell. She's, she's not competent. me. She can hit yeah. things. So um, this woman leans forward and says, do you, do you have a throwing knife? And I, and I said, no. And she said, she leans, <laughs> pulls one out of her boot and lays it on the table in front of me and says, I thought you needed one. <laughs> now, I'm not quite sure what she expected. I was going to march through. The, anyway, so I gave it to my, uh, my brother. I was staying with him in Portland. And he said he'd, he'd bring it down to me at Thanksgiving. And instead of that, he decides to mail it. <laughs> and so he takes it and he puts it on a piece of cardboard. And, you know, they're viciously sharp. They really are. And he puts a little piece of cardboard around. And he takes it and he just mails it with a 44-cent stamp on it. <laughs> and it came in one of those plastic envelopes saying, we're sorry, this came open. And, the, and it was curved. It was bent. I can't imagine what it did to the post I probably shouldn't record this I didn't I'm not recording this you're oh. not putting this on the radio oh, no I, no because I'm probably responsible for the ruination of a multi-million dollar sorting machine <laughs> at, at the post office I mean what you know steel five inches of steel to bend it I just I just can't imagine what it did to the machine but I now have a a, a, a throwing knife that would go around corners. <laughs> <laughs> so when people ask me if I'm Mary Russell, you know, I think I, I, no, no room for throwing knives. No, no, no throwing knives in my boots, no. <laughs> well, maybe you can bring the throwing knife to, you, to our next confab. <sighs> Ladies and gentlemen, we've had the great pleasure of having Laurie A.R. King join us tonight to talk about a study in Sherlock Here's a book that will keep you up nights, and uh, you will the stories you can read more than once, and that's exactly what we look for, a reading experience that you enjoy the first time so much, you know you can go back and enjoy it again. And by setting up and choosing their authors correctly, they got some great stuff in here. This is rocks. And we're very pleased that uh, Random House wants a second volume, so we're now Oh, really? Run. Yeah. Oh, yeah. congratulations. The, 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 the new batch is going to be... Even more interesting. Oh, good. Yes, yes. Thank you for joining us, Lori. I think Lori is now going to sign every book with her name in it on this in this uh, bookstore. Uh, everything. Is this turn? You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.